Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. This week's episode is a recording of a speech and moderated conversation hosted by the Reagan Institute last week with Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. The senator is speaking to the publication of his recently released report titled Beat China, Targeted Decoupling and the Economic Long War. If you enjoy the conversation, Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and remember to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Good morning. I'm Roger Zakheim, director of the Reagan Institute. We are the home of the Reagan Foundation in the nation's capital. We're glad you could join us today. All this year, we're celebrating 40 at 40, the 40th anniversary of our 40th president's inaugural year, with a special focus on key events from that year. And historians and Reaganites will know that February 18 marks the date of President Reagan's first address to Congress. So I think it's appropriate today that if instead of an address to Congress, we're hosting an address from Congress. And to give that address, we're very excited to welcome Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. Senator Cotton's here for a special reason, and we didn't just promise him sheet cake. If you're a Tom Cotton fan, you know what I'm talking about. He's here to announce the release of a new report titled Beat China, Targeted Decoupling and the New Long War. Senator Cotton has been outspoken on the strategic threat posed by China to both American leadership and American prosperity. It's been a focus for him on the intelligence, armed services, and banking committees. In December 2019, a Reagan Institute task force released a landmark report on strengthening America's national security innovation base. The center's work recognizes and builds on the importance of that mission. So we're grateful that he has chosen the Reagan Institute as a venue to release his report. I've known Tom for many years, going back to his days in the House of Representatives. He is a public office holder who puts in the long hours and does the hard work. And he doesn't avoid big challenges. He's actually drawn to them. Which reminds me of a line from the first congressional address of President Reagan, in which he laid out his plan for economic recovery. He said, together we can embark on this road, not to make things easy, but to make things better. Senator Cotton doesn't promise that targeted decoupling and fighting, quote, the economic loan war will be easy, but he does believe it will make things better for American strength and security and for the next generation. So, ladies and gentlemen, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. Thanks, Roger, uh, for those kind words. Uh, I regret that uh, we couldn't have this event in person today uh, because of the deep freeze that settled across the country, but it's good to join you and join the Reagan Foundation for this virtual event to discuss the greatest foreign policy challenge America faces, which is our new Cold War with China. Uh, there's no better place to talk about this topic than the Reagan Foundation, bearing the name as it does of the president who won America's first Cold War without firing shot, just as we wanna win this new Cold War. As you said, Roger, today I'm releasing a report entitled Beat China, Targeted Decoupling and the Economic Long War. This report details a strategy for competition with a new evil empire, communist China. This evil empire preys on and spies on Americans. It imprisons innocent people in concentration camps, 
It uses slave labor to fuel its factories, and it denies the most basic freedoms to all of its 1.4 billion people. We need to beat this evil empire and consign the Chinese communists, just like the Bolsheviks, to the ash heap of history. But this Cold War will be more complicated than the first. China is wealthier, more populous than any enemy America has ever faced. It's also more entangled with us economically. America's deep dependence on China didn't grow up overnight. It was the work of decades. As Washington politicians pursued a so-called strategic partnership with China and Wall Street and corporate America worked to integrate our economies. Many believe that open markets and open borders would make China rich and then make China free. So for decades, they fed the tiger and made it more powerful. A tidal wave of Chinese imports flooded our markets, sweeping away millions of high paying American manufacturing jobs and devastating the communities that depended on those factories. This did indeed make China rich, but instead of reforming and becoming free, the Communist Party began to exploit the new connections between our free society and its totalitarian society. When American schools began admitting hundreds of thousands of Chinese nationals each year to work and study, the Chinese government turned many of them into spies. When American companies scrambled for China's vast market, Beijing forced them to hand over proprietary technology and pledge never to speak out against the party in any way or speak up for its victims. And finally, when China outsourced production of even essential goods, when America outsourced production of even essential goods to China, the Communist Party began threatening to cut us off. Just this week, the Chinese government proposed export controls on rare earth elements that are essential to our most advanced weapons, such as the F-35. China has a virtual monopoly on rare earth mining and processing. That means Beijing could ground our most advanced jets at almost any time just by cutting off access to a few key inputs. It's sad that a great nation would ever find itself in such a position and we can't allow it to continue. Now the Chinese Communist Party is no paper tiger. We can't afford to wait pa passively for its collapse or reform. But for all the challenges we face, it's vital to remember that China faces its own challenges. And while we depend on China in unsettling ways, it cuts both ways as well. Chairman Xi should be worried about his future too. First, for all of its investment and five-year plans, China still relies on the United States to access advanced science and technology. Its students and researchers come here, not the other way around. Second and related, China's export-oriented economy depends on U.S. consumers to fuel its growth and U.S. financial markets to broker its transactions. This is a vulnerability in Beijing has learned to its chagrin during the most recent trade war. Finally, the myth that we can both tame a totalitarian regime and use it as an offshore factory and trading post has been punctured and is rapidly losing air. While it was possible for Joe Biden to raise a champagne toast to Chairman Xi at the White House less than 10 years ago, today such an event would be a grave scandal. The will and need to confront communist China is growing. Now is the time for action. Any serious strategy to beat China must start with a commitment to decouple our countries in key areas 
in order to exploit the leverage we still have over China and minimize its leverage over us. As we pull apart, we'll also have to rebuild parts of our economy to minimize the cost of separation. We can start by building on the previous administration's strategy of sanctioning the Communist Party's worst actors, such as human rights abusers, to cut them off from the US financial system. We have to expand this campaign to include entire Chinese companies that steal American intellectual property or even benefit from stolen intellectual property. The message should finally be clear. Steal from Americans once, and you'll be looking over your shoulder forever. We should also correct one of the great bipartisan failures of the last 25 years by finally terminating China's permanent normal trade relation status. There's nothing normal about our trade relationship with China, and we can't afford for it to be permanent. So we ought to return to the old system where the President and Congress reviewed China's trade privileges each year in light of its progress on human rights and other fronts. We can also tighten our export controls to prevent China from obtaining cutting edge technology with military applications, such as semiconductors, 5G telecommunications equipment, artificial intelligence, and quantum computers. We must pair export controls with investment in R&D and manufacturing so the future of these critical technologies is made in America, not in Asia, and certainly not in China. In addition to cutting edge technology, we need to break our dependence on China for basic goods that are critical to our survival, such as essential medicines, medical supplies, and rare earth elements. The United States foolishly sent much of this production overseas in the belief that it was low value. Now we have to bring it back. A nation that cannot heal itself, care for its sick, or keep its aircraft in the sky is not secure and will not remain a superpower. In a similar vein, we need to cut off the spigot of money that has fueled China's rise and corrupted our elites, creating a China lobby stretching from New York and Washington to Silicon Valley and Hollywood, touching corporate boardrooms and college campuses in between. The United States must more carefully scrutinize inbound investment from China while preventing outbound investment that will build the next Huawei or ZTE. That means preventing American pension funds from investing in companies with close ties to the Communist Party or People's Liberation Army. And it means closing loopholes so unscrupulous investors can't simply route their transactions through offshore third parties to skirt our laws. Just as we need to stop funding China's rise, we also need to stop training its engineers and admitting its spies. We need to admit fewer Chinese nationals for work and study, and we need to admit none in advanced STEM fields at the graduate level and above. No doubt this will be painful for some universities and big tech companies that rely on Chinese nationals to pay their bills and staff their labs. No doubt they'll resist out of self-interest and a commitment to so-called open-mindedness, so fanatical that their brains have fallen out. But with the right incentives and support, we can replace Chinese nationals with American students. And once the supply of bright young Americans has been exhausted, we can then turn to our allies instead of deepening the talent pool of our number one enemy. Finally, carrying out this strategy will depend on coordinated and effective action by the federal government, which hasn't been tested by great power competition since the fall of the Soviet Union. So decoupling must come with a reorganization of our federal government as well. In particular, export control authorities, such as the Bureau of Industry and Security, ought to be moved 
from the Department of Commerce to a department that puts national security first, such as the State Department. The Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control ought to be expanded considerably, with a separate task force devoted to sanctioning China's intellectual property thieves, military companies, and state-owned puppets. Finally, the Secretary of Defense ought to have a more prominent role on the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States to ensure the national security perspective takes precedence in decisions regarding Chinese investment in our country. Now, the strategy I've outlined is merely a sketch, but fundamentally, this strategy is about repositioning and rebuilding. Repositioning so the Chinese Communist Party is no longer able to exploit our entanglement. Rebuilding to prepare for a protracted twilight struggle that will determine the fate of the world. During the depths of the Cold War, Ronald Reagan spoke of America's duty to confront Soviet communism. He called it our rendezvous with destiny, a contest between spirits, not animals, between freedom and slavery. Thanks to Ronald Reagan's steady leadership and vision, we met that moment prevailed. Today, we face another test against another evil empire. If you doubt the comparison, let me tell you a short story. In 2014, Chairman Xi traveled far western Xinjiang province to tell his lieutenants how to deal with the religious and ethnic minority people known as the Uyghurs. Xi called for, quote, all out struggle against terrorism, infiltration, and domination. That struggle, said Xi, should be waged using, quote, organs of dictatorship. And it should show, quote, absolutely no mercy to enemies of the party. The world has now seen what Chairman Xi meant by merciless dictatorship. The Uyghur people are victims of genocide on a sickening scale. If that's what the Chinese Communist Party does to its own people, imagine what it will do to the rest of the world. And while many countries deplore the party's tyranny, only one country is in a position to stop it. That's the United States of America, and that's our new rendezvous with destiny. So let's pour our whole hearts into meeting this challenge so America and the free world will prevail once again. Thank you. Well, thank you, Senator, um, for those remarks. Um, candid to the point as we uh, have come to expect of you. Um, we'll take a few minutes just a conversation between the two of us following up on both your remarks and your report. And then uh, we'll take questions from our viewers uh, as well. Um, well, let's, let's just jump into it. Beat China, evil empire, ash heap of history, uh, not mincing words. Uh, it reminds me of Reagan's words uh, of we win, they lose. Perhaps uh, one Reagan quote you didn't include in the speech relevant to the Cold War, but that was his approach to the Cold War. It was pretty consistent throughout. Uh, the end of your report calls for, quote, victory. So uh, take a minute and share with us what does victory look like here? Roger, first and foremost, victory looks like an America that is prosperous, secure, and free. China has way too many points of leverage over the United States and our allies right now, just as we saw in the most recent news of threatening to cut off rare earth elements. And this is, again, a choice that we have made. It should be clear that there's nothing rare about rare earth elements. It's not like China only has them in its soil. They're all over the world. 
just that we chose not to mine them and process them and manufacture them. It's time that we reverse those choices. And that's just one example. I gave many others in my speech, whether it's semiconductors or telecommunications, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, or things that are not cutting edge technology, but that are, are essential to take care of our people. As we saw last year at the early stages of the pandemic, medical protective equipment, basic pharmaceuticals, uh, we have to make sure that our people are no longer dependent on China in a way that allows a communist adversary that aspires to dominate the world and replace us as the world's great power continues to have as a point of leverage. Again, this is gonna take a long time. Uh, it's gonna cause some dislocation disruption, but there are ways that we can mitigate that. And that should be our focus. And that's the way that we can achieve victory in this long economic war against China. Yeah, and I wanna, in a few minutes, uh, get to the mitigation um, that you, uh, refer to in, in the speech and, and jump into uh, in detail in the report. But let, let's hover on the victory uh, point for a moment. Um, let's just say we restore uh, our strength. We uh, decrease and remove the dependence on China, which is what I understand uh, for you to be advocating here. Uh, are we seeking some sort of detente with China and kind of the Kissinger-esque approach? Um, or is there is there something else in the outcome that, that we're seeking here? So wh where does it leave us in our relate bilateral relationship with China uh, if we do indeed, as you propose, um, get that leverage back and get remove the dependence? Well, so our report uh, is focused on the economic war. Um, however, uh, there are many other areas in which we compete with China and that we have clear red lines that we cannot allow China to cross. For instance, um, trying to... Um, seize Taiwan by force, or trying to seize any of the islands that Taiwan or Japan, for instance, have as their sovereign territory, uh, invading the territory of other countries that are friendly and allied, such as India, um, permitting a kind of uh, attack on American allies or troops in the region from North Korea when they could have stopped it. Those are clear red lines that will require a response from the United States. Um, we also can't tolerate or turn a blind eye to the treatment of uh, minorities, ethnic, religious, otherwise, in their territory. I spoke about the Uyghur peoples in my remarks. There's also Hong Kong, where China has uh, violated its international obligations uh, after just 25 years of sovereignty, uh, less than that, actually, um, over Hong Kong. Um, these are the kind of uh, lies and deceit that the Chinese Communist Party continue to practice. And if not surprising that they've been cheating American workers and American families on the economic front to begin with. So although my report is about the economic war with China, there are many other fronts in which we have to compete. Um, now, obviously China um, is a large uh, nation. It's an influential nation and it always will be, but we cannot allow it to become the world's great power when we still have it very much under our control to remain the great power to remain the country that all those Asian countries want to trade with, want to partner with, want to have an alliance with. Um, we're always going to have to deal with China, uh, but we want to do so on our terms from a position of strength and prosperity and security. Um, so just to uh, find a point on it, it seems like you're advocating once we restore the economic strength combined with the military strength elsewhere, you advocate, uh, not in this speech or report, but I know that's a position you, you have uh, pursued and promoted in the Congress, is it gonna be some sort of containment of the Chinese Communist Party? Or do you think ultimately that 
their system of government um, that needs to, you know, you reference ash shape of history needs to change um, in order for the U.S. Uh, to realize the prosperity and peace that you are advocating for. Well, their system of government is communist tyranny, and uh, I think it's destined for failure if America leads. Um, you know, it, if America had not led in the Cold War, if we had not confronted the Soviet Union, um, if we had not pursued a strategy of containment and tried to keep communism from bursting out of the bounds of Asia, then uh, it might not have failed. But none of that was a foregone conclusion. It took strong leaders, starting with Harry Truman and ending with Ronald Reagan, to win the Cold War without firing a shot and to vindicate constitutional democracy. You see the Chinese model spreading through many countries, especially through the Belt and Road Initiative, which China uses to put smaller countries uh, throughout Asia and Africa uh, in essentially kind of um, debt peonage, hoping that they can ultimately reduce that to security vassalage as well. Um, if we don't stand up to that, it's not destined to fail by its own. We have to confront it on every front, everywhere we find it, if we want to remain a free, prosperous, secure country. Yeah, indeed, your report emphasizes how we have to compete in that realm as well uh, on the Belt and Roads Initiative with USAID and uh, Development Corp, the successor to OPEC, uh, need more investment. Um, the Cold War analogy uh, is not without controversy. Uh, obviously, you're, you're pulling the thread on the economic piece of it. Uh, Bob Zellick, a veteran of Republican White Houses and State Departments, has critiqued this approach. He's written, and I'll read you the quote and would love to get your reaction. The, the new cold warriors, which I will now put you in that category, uh, probably could have done before the speech, but certainly after, can't contain China given its ties throughout the world. Other countries won't join us, nor can the US break the regime, though the Communist Party's flaws could open cracks within its own society. The US can impose costs on China, but to what end? And at what price to Americans? Well, <laughs> well, there's no doubt that this is going to be a greater challenge. I mean, we are much more entangled as an economic matter with China than we ever were with the Soviet Union. If you just look at trade and finance flows. That didn't happen by accident or by force of nature. It happened because of failed, flawed policies uh, over the last 30 years, pursued by both parties, pursued by some of the people who you now cite as saying that we can't win this Cold War with China. I simply dispute that. What resulted as a matter of policy can change as a matter of policy, and we can bring allies along with us. Look, that's what leadership is about. Now, some countries are going to be easier to convince than others. Look, nobody on China's periphery wants to be a vassal state to China. Many of them have been at certain points in their history, and they didn't like it. You already see countries like Australia and South Korea and Japan and Vietnam and India um, wanting to cooperate and trade even more closely with China as well. Um, unfortunately, that's not always the case with some countries. If you look at Europe and the recent agreement they just um, signed with China, Germany there is the worst of all, of course. Germany likes to celebrate itself for its preference for enlightened multilateral engagement and patting themselves on the back for being worldly and cosmopolitan. All they're really doing is engaging their own kind of neo-mercantilism. I mean, just look at some of the facts. I mean, Volkswagen sold 40% of all of its vehicles in China, and that's only going to increase. Um, and the Volkswagen CEO said uh, when asked about the genocide in Xinjiang that he just couldn't, couldn't judge it. He didn't know what you were talking about. Uh, so there's going to be some countries that are harder to bring along than other countries. But that was the case in the Cold War as well. Um, but I am firmly convinced after studying this issue carefully that what happened as a matter of policy, the deep economic entanglement between the United States and Europe and other countries with China 
can be reversed as a matter of policy as well. We don't have to sit by and blackly accept the status quo that is rapidly allowing China to gain, and if we don't change, surpass us to become the world's largest economy and the world's strongest military. I fundamentally reject that status quo. So uh, you really do in this report get into the details of the economic integration between the United States and China. Indeed, the, the first 20 pages really kind of go through all the data there and, 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 and show how tied we are. Uh, you kind of capture it in buckets of trade and capital and knowledge. Uh, we don't have time to get into all of them. But like in your speech and your report, you are quite critical of the China lobby. And to me, that's the people and businesses that benefit and have built this integration and, and really at the encouragement of our government. Um, you know, one quote really stands out in your introduction. It says, the time has come, though, to call the China lobby what it is and ask if they really want to sell the proverbial rope that the communists in Beijing will use to hang us all. Let's narrow it down to the, to the American work and American family, which clearly benefits uh, from the cheap goods and products that we import from China. Do you see that as something that uh, we can continue uh, because that doesn't kind of rise to the, the national security challenges like in the semiconductor uh, sector? Or uh, are you saying we need to, if not onshore the manufacturing for those goods, reshore them so we're not actually importing uh, the cheap goods that we all enjoy when we go to Walmart or Best Buy or any other place? Well, so first off, if I were a leader in corporate America and I had operations in China, I would be packing up and getting out. Um, I would be packing up and getting out uh, because uh, of the need uh, to have the kind of disentanglement of our economy and the recognition by leaders in both parties now, um, at least in Congress, that we need to do so. And the strong opposition to that relationship among the American people. Um, I do so based on the threats uh, of sanctions or other policies because you can't know what your supply, where your supply chain is coming from in, uh, in China. Um, look, there's obviously a difference on the one hand between, say, semiconductors or telecommunications equipment, um, rare earth elements, or even medical supplies and pharmaceuticals. And on the other hand, you know, cheap plastic toys or T-shirts or umbrellas. And I make that distinction in the report as well. Um, however, you know, a lot of corporate America spent the last year lobbying against an effort to prevent trade from uh, Xinjiang province, where the Uyghur minority has been forced into slave labor. Uh, we're not China's uh, moving Uyghur slave labor all around the country. So American CEOs can't really be sure of their supply chains in China. So if I were a corporate leader in America, I would pack up and I would get out. I would try to bring it back to America first. If not America, try to bring it back to somewhere in North or South America. But at least if we're going to depend on foreign countries for so many of our goods, it's a lot better to depend on countries that are friendly and allied to us who aren't building a military specifically designed to defeat our military. So there is a difference and a difference I've drawn in this report between strategic uh, sectors of our economy or sectors that are vital to our national security, our health and our safety, uh, and then other low cost goods like t-shirts or plastic toys. Um, and we draw that distinction in the report, but um, there's still a lot of risk of doing business with Chinese Communist Party and corporate America needs to understand that. So I, I want to get into some of the sectors which you are, are squarely fall into the national security side in your recommendations. We also have some questions uh, from the audience, which I'll get to in just a moment. But your speech, uh, as well as our conversation, has highlighted a number of instances the, the American values 
at stake here. Uh, human rights, uh, the plight of the Uyghurs, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, I know that wasn't the focus of, of your report, but you're drawing this connection. And uh, I want you to comment on the relevance and the kind of the linkage as, as Secretary, former Secretary of State uh, uh, Schultz, uh, recently passed Secretary of State during the Reagan administration, would emphasize uh, the linkage. Do you believe that the economic separation uh, or decoupling that you're advocating in this report will actually allow the United States to stand firmer on those values of, of freedom and liberty uh, and the human rights that are under assault in China? I do believe that. I think it's disgraceful that some corporate leaders in America have spent the last year lobbying against sanctions uh, on Chinese officials for using slave labor in Xinjiang province, um, and that they don't want to have accountability for their own supply chains in China. Those supply chains weren't in China if they were in the United States or if they were just in a friendly country like Canada or like Japan, then we wouldn't have this issue. Um, but the defense of human rights, uh, of basic liberties, has always been fundamental to America's foreign policy and none more so than the last 75 years when we faced off against communist tyrannies. You cited uh, George Shultz, uh, another um, great cabinet member uh, of the last generation was Bob Gates. And Bob Gates wrote in his memoirs uh, about how much uh, the Soviet Union hated it whenever Jerry Ford or Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan raised human rights uh, as an issue. It was one of the first things that they would always raise in their bilateral conversations. It always put them on the defensive. So, of course, we should defend basic human liberty, which is good in and of itself in all places. But it is also uh, very important to our strategic competition with China, just as it was with the Soviet Union. And you can see this happen uh, in bilateral relationships. Um, after the question of Taiwan, Communist Party leaders probably hate any question about the Uyghurs or Hong Kong or Tibet or Christian house churches than anything else. Um, look at who they sanctioned uh, on the first day of the Biden administration last month. They very carefully chose members of the Trump administration who had often raised these questions about basic freedom, whether it was Hong Kong or Tibet or the Uyghurs. They did not sanction those officials who were primarily responsible for imposing uh, tariffs on China or negotiating trade deals. That goes to show you how sensitive the Communist Party is to being uh, shown to the world be a genocidal state um, and how much they uh, despise whenever Americans raise those issues, we should raise those issues, not only because it's good and right in itself, but because it puts the Communist Party on the back foot where it belongs. Yeah, certainly uh, rhymes with the past and a commonality between um, Soviet Union uh, and, and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, we'll take a couple of minutes to dig into uh, the report a bit. Um, the report not only highlights the integration of our economies and uh, where we need to separate or decouple uh, word you use, but also how you manage the impacts and mitigate it. And that's where I wanna go. Um, you talk about a number of sectors from entertainment to medicine, uh, artificial intelligence and semiconductors. Let me focus on semiconductors here since it's in the news a lot and impacts all of that. Um, you call for a ban on sale of semiconductors, particularly the cutting edge into China um, and that would obviously impact uh, that industry, which relies on sales into China. Um, 
by calling for increased government R&D um, to funding to support uh, those companies that will lose the revenue that they get from China and help uh, spur their own innovation. Um, I want you to comment on that approach and that dynamic, how governments can, in your mind, should come in to support those sectors which will be hurt by decoupling in the case of semiconductors. And then kind of conceptually to deal with, isn't this fighting China by using China's model of government subsidy, which I know you address in part in the report? Yeah, we address this at great length in the report. Um, we can't simply stand by, stand back and say, well, the, the invisible hand uh, is going to take care of everything in classical laissez-faire liberal economics will help us. Not when we're competing against a country that uses all these tools, not only in their own economy, like state subsidies, but also through just outright theft of our technology. Um, and increasingly as um, nations compete, as militaries uh, depend upon high technology, things that we don't typically think of as military technology, uh, and we face off a country that uses what they call civil military fusion, where every civilian business is at the beck and call of the People's Liberation Army. We can't simply stand back and allow that work to be done in China or to uh, not have it done in the United States. I mean, it would be crazy. And no one would have ever thought in the Cold War that we should allow the Soviet Union to make our steel or build our tanks and our airplanes or mine our uranium. I mean, it's absurd to do that or to help the Soviet Union do those things itself. That's the relationship we're in with China. Uh, so just last year, for instance, we passed the American Founders Act uh, with Chuck Schumer and John Cornyn and Mark Warner, of all people. I mean, talk about your strange bedfellows. That would help bring semiconductor and manufacturing to the United States. So we're not dependent on outsourced factories across Asia, some of which are in friendly countries, but friendly countries which are very close missile range uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. And that would help not pick winners and losers, but supply the basic the basic foundational uh, investments that we need to have that kind of advanced manufacturing in the United States, at least to a baseline level that we don't have to worry about being dependent upon China or that we don't have to worry about China stealing our technology and reverse engineering it and so forth. Well, these you, are tools, go ahead, sorry. I was gonna say, these, these are tools um, that we used in the Cold War, uh, whether they were supporting critical industries at home um, or putting tariffs on uh, products coming in from other countries to protect those industries, um, or not trading certain goods with communists with the communist bloc. They're tools we have to use now. We don't want to use them with allies. We don't want to use them in every industry. Um, but we can't allow China to distort the market, uh, to steal our technology, while we continue to sell it to them. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, nearby countries that were also dependent on the semiconductor uh, industry. Uh, your report... Uh, actually, you know, calls for cooperation, uh, like of a trading block. Uh, it strikes me that Asia, in some respects, you know, it's like technology in Asia is like oil in the last century in, in the Middle East, right? It, it really drives geopolitics. How concerned are you, uh, not just with what China's trying to do in semiconductors, but our dependence on semiconductors uh, being manufactured and fabbed in, in Taiwan or uh South Korea, for example, uh, is that yeah. what's the onshoring? And then related, and we'll go to questions from the audience. You know, the the Chip Act, which you referenced, uh, was passed, is an unfunded mandate. Do you anticipate that the Congress will seek to fund that, perhaps even as soon as this COVID stimulus bill uh, gets resolved? Uh, so, take your second question first. The simple answer: Yes. Um, whether we do that through uh, direct appropriations or tax credits or some combination of both, the answer is yes. 
continuing to work with Senator Schumer, Cornyn, and Warner to do just that. Uh, your first question, broader question, and gets into some central security questions as well. Uh, let's not beat around the bush about what we're talking about here. We're talking about, about Taiwan and China invading Taiwan uh, and not just subjugating the Taiwanese people and seizing uh, uh, that territory, which they can then use to project power uh, out into the blue waters, but also seizing the high technology manufacturing they have on Taiwan, uh, most notably Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Um, I am worried that China has grown more aggressive over the last 10 years since she took power uh, in its rhetoric and its actions towards Taiwan. Uh, the United States needs to be clear that we will not allow China to invade Taiwan and subjugate it. Case closed. No further debate. Now, throughout uh, modern times, we've had a uh, so-called policy of strategic ambiguity. Uh, we haven't been crystal clear on that. I think the time has come to be clear and replace strategic ambiguity with strategic clarity that the United States will come to the aid of Taiwan if China tries to forcibly invade Taiwan or otherwise change the status quo across the strait. Uh, even you know, um, someone like Richard Haas, uh, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations has said that as well. This is not a conservative or right-wing idea. It's an idea to preserve peace and stability in the Western Pacific. Um, it, it's time to make that crystal clear and I think deter Beijing from taking that, that radical and dangerous step of forcibly invading Taiwan. Um, now, in addition to that, we should try to bring more of that semiconductor manufacturing back to the United States out of the Western Pacific. So it's not specifically under the threat of Chinese invasion in Taiwan or implicitly under the threat of economic warfare and other kinds of pressure in South Korea. All right, we're gonna go some questions uh, from our viewers. Uh, first comes from Julian Barnes, uh, intelligence national reporter from the New York Times. Uh, he writes, you are on the intelligence committee and have questioned nominees for those agencies about China issues. What does the CIA and other intelligence agencies need to do to improve their analysis of the China challenge? What do they need to do to improve intelligence collection in China, given that Chinese surveillance technology makes collection very difficult? Well, first, we need all of our intelligence agencies to make it our number one priority. Uh, it's not their only priority. Um, we have other high priorities as well, like Russia or the threat of terrorism. Uh, but China is the gravest threat we face. And intelligence agencies are like any bureaucratic organization. Uh, they develop a culture and they develop habits uh, and customs. Uh, my observations from intelligence agencies over the last six years is that because they were born in the Cold War, they still place outsized weight on Russia. And there's a lot to, to be uh, focused on in Russia, whether it's meddling in our elections or trying to subvert elections in Europe, or trying to um, spread their model of government around the world. Uh, but our intelligence agencies need to understand that China is the number one target and that we need to put more manpower, more money, more technology to collect intelligence against the Chinese Communist Party. And, and you're right that it's very hard to do so in mainland China because of the ubiquitous surveillance technology they have there. And they're, they're unfortunately exporting to many other countries around the world. Um, I don't want to go much farther into the kinds of sources and methods we might use against that ubiquitous surveillance technology. Uh, I will say that I'm confident uh, that we can address that challenge. But to address it, we need a lot more resources against the China threat across our intelligence community. Uh, next question is from uh, Rich Edson, State Department correspondent on Fox News Channel. Uh, this kind of comes uh, 
out of uh, COVID in particular, and, and your report highlights how COVID is one of the most uh, kind of significant reasons uh, that uh, really kind of drove uh, recommendations in your report, what, what America has learned and experienced through it. Here's what he writes. Secretary of State uh, Blinken announced yesterday that the U.S. would reverse President Trump's hold on WHO funding and disperse more than $200 million to the WHO by the end of the month. Uh, proponents say reform the WHO, the U.S. needs to be at the table. Should the U.S. ever re-enter the WHO? And if not, how should the administration address the Chinese Communist Party influence at the WHO? Great question about international organizations and, and kind of the competition there. Yeah, that is a good question. And I'll address the WHA, but the broader question of international organizations, because I address this in the report as well. Um, we need to try to exert the influence we have at international organizations where we're still part of them, and we think they can possibly be reformed. China has waged a long campaign to exert influence these the organizations. Uh, and I mean that literally, campaigns in some places, organizing countries, lobbying them, probably paying them off, trying to trade votes so they can influence who the leaders are. I mean, for goodness sake, it was almost a Chinese candidate who became head of the World Intellectual Property Organization. But there are cases like the WHO in which I, I think the Chinese influence is simply too deep, too deep in the organization, too deep with its leadership. I don't agree with President Biden's decision to rejoin the WHO. I don't think they've changed their ways. I mean, look, they just sent a so-called investigative commission to Wuhan led by some food safety expert in Denmark, not even a, uh, an epidemiologist. And they just dismissed out of hand the prospect that the coronavirus may have been the result of an accidental lab leak uh, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, without really any evidence, without probing the question, without pointing to the alternative evidence that would support a more likely hypothesis. The fact that the WHO still hasn't learned its lesson more than a year ago suggests that we would be better served, as I say in the report, not about the WHO in particular, but about international organizations of trying to develop new organizations, new coalitions, new groupings of countries that recognize the threat of China, that want to address the kind of challenges we face, that don't view these international organizations as just another means to spread their malign influence around the world. Um, we're gonna go to uh, immigration, which you hit on your report. This question comes from Ashley Kim from CNS News. Uh, she writes, many policy analysts from the left and right alike argue that allowing greater permanent visas, um, EB-1-4, excluding uh, investment EB-5s, especially within STEM fields, is among the best ways for the U.S. to take workers from China and increase our tech innovation and hegemony. If this is the case, why would restricting immigration from China be a better policy to pursue? And I'll add on this that um, um, the Reagan Institute task force looked at this question, and while it felt that we absolutely needed to kind of reclaim the brain drain that so helped us in the 20th century, um, that the focus should be kind of outside of China. So not Chinese nationals, but other students uh, in the STEM field coming to the United States. Uh, so that's kind of where our bipartisan task force landed. But uh, how do you reconcile the need to bring in this talent and know on STEM uh, with uh, your call on restricting immigration from China? Well, first, Roger, kind of along the lines that you said at the Reagan Institute, I dispute that we need to bring in the Chinese talent to our universities and then into our businesses. Um, and look, it, I'm not saying every Chinese national here um, is here and working for the Chinese Communist Party, but there's a reason why the Communist Party allows them out of mainland China to, to begin with. And even if they weren't willingly working for the Chinese Communist Party, of course, once they get here, they're subject to great pressure. 
mean, their families are still in mainland China. And this is say nothing to the fact that so many of them are just spoiled kids of Chinese princelings uh, who are able to get their kids out of China and get them into an American university because of their political connections. Um, look, there's no question that this is going to be somewhat disruptive. Uh, and you hear a lot of complaints from the tech sector saying they have to have Chinese students here on these visas or from universities who are used to pay, getting Chinese students paying full freight that they don't have to provide uh, grants or scholarships to or getting Confucius Institute money to help subsidize operations on campus as well. Um, I don't accept those reasons as very compelling though, when the risk is having Chinese nationals in some of our most advanced and cutting edge laboratories or departments that depend on federal money and produce the most cutting edge technology that can be used against us. I mean, again, just think about it. It would have been a total scandal to have trained a generation of Soviet nuclear scientists during the Cold War. I mean, how's it not a scandal today to train Chinese military researchers in artificial intelligence or rocket engineering. And this is not a new idea that I have either. There's recent precedent on this. The Obama administration restricted Iranian students from studying nuclear sciences a decade ago. Um, also, I, I would say that we're not saying that Chinese students can't ever come to the United States. What we su suggest is that we should not allow Chinese students in graduate and postgraduate fields at the most cutting edge institutions, studying the most cutting edge work. So look, if you, if you wanna come here as a Chinese student, as an undergrad and study basic sciences, or probably better study the Federalist Papers and take that knowledge back to China, that would be fine. But we shouldn't be giving away the knowledge and the technology that China is going to use against us. Um, I would also just make one final distinction. A lot of these visas people are talking about, I mean, they are called non-immigrant visas. These are not people who want to escape communism, come to the United States, become citizens here, live here and build a business here. There are people who are coming here to get that training and going back to China. Well, I mean, the, the lot in the report on education, higher ed, and, and what needs to be done there. Uh, and it's a shame we, we don't have the time uh, to get into that, but encourage our viewers uh, to read the report. Uh, last question before we wrap up, uh, really in the news, uh, Rahm Emanuel, former chief of staff uh, to President Obama, member of Congress, is being floated to become the U.S., the next U.S. ambassador to China. Uh, does he have what it takes to, quote, beat China in Beijing, Senator Cotton? You know, back when Rahm Emanuel was a political operative, there's a famous story about he sent a rival political operative a dead fish wrapped in a newspaper. So I think he, he certainly uh, is tough enough uh, and uh, can be uh, foul-mouthed enough to confront Chinese communists if that's a priority for him. If that's who Joe Biden nominates, obviously uh, I'll speak with him and examine his record on the question. I don't know much about where Ron Emanuel stands on China. In the end though, what really matters is Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden's foreign policy that Anthony Blinken is administering through the State Department and uh, any ambassador to China would be implementing from Beijing. So the real open question here is what Joe Biden will do uh, over the next four years. In the past, I, I gotta say, he's not been very strong on China at all. He was one of the cheerleaders for permanent most favored nation status and WTO admission in the uh, late 1990s and early 2000. He ran point for the Obama administration on uh, its relationship with Xi Jinping that obviously uh, turned out uh, very poorly. Uh, so I'll be watching very closely, but in the early days, I, I still have my concerns. Senator Khan, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us here today, virtually at the Reagan Institute. We look forward to having you back at the Reagan Institute in person. Thank you. Thank you.